How's it going, everybody? And welcome to Soundcheck After Dark. I'm Ben Ackley, and I'm here with the incomparably sexy Andrew Mullen and Michael Livingston. Today, Hello, we're going to be talking about film soundtracks. Isn't that right, Michael? That is correct, Ben. <laughs> okay. Now that we've scared all of our <laughs> listeners away. <laughs> um, hey, everyone. Uh, we're recording really late tonight. It's about 10 o'clock. Yeah. And, we uh, never record this late. Nope. So. We usually record on Sundays around mid-afternoon-ish. But uh, we recorded this one, and uh, because of just technical issues, the episode was lost. So this is uh, round two for recording. And like Ben said, we're kind of engaging the uh, movie soundtrack field due to the 17th annual Central Michigan International Film Festival that's currently underway when this episode drops February 5th through February 9th. Uh, Tickets on sale now. And uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about our favorite movie soundtracks, something we've wanted to talk about for a little bit now. And now we finally have like a topical way of engaging the Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, No, this this should certainly be an interesting one. Um, And I I should probably start off right off the bat here that um, I'm not, for me personally, I'm not like super like into films like I am with music. Yeah. Music just is, for me, it has been for for many, many years now, like my main form of, uh, you know, art that I like to consume. Mm -hmm. You know, YouTube as well, as far as visual stuff, that's kind of how I get most of my visual content. So TV shows. That's kind of how it's going now. It's like. the movies. I mean, that's just the trend now. You're right. So, Mm -hmm. um. That's the bandwagon I've jumped on. So, yeah, um, this will certainly be an interesting one for me. Um, so, like, as far as, like, trying to work everything out, and I'll, I'll share my opinions on movie soundtracks in general, how they, how they work as albums later on as we go through our discussions. But before we really dive in, we should, like, as always, I'd like to remind everyone that we have a Twitter. You can follow us at scheckofficial. Um, you can follow me at AntraMullen4 if you want to follow my doings for whatever reason <laughs> yeah i wouldn't but that's your choice yep and you can follow me at michael c live also on twitter uh ben you got any social uh no i'm off social media right now okay fantastic <laughs> the grid yep. yeah and good uh, luck before we start also i want to just want to jump off andrew's point real quick about uh I'm, i wouldn't consider myself a film buff either but um i have been doing my research and i i've, I've noticed i'm kind of engaging analyzing a film the same way I would analyze music just in a kind of a visual sense and sort of mm-hmm. you know this episode is going to be tailored how does this soundtrack benefit the movie as a whole so you know even though we're going to be talking about movies you might hear some plot point discussion or something about that uh, it's mostly it's going to be an analysis of the soundtracks right and so. I would like to jump off of both of those and mm-hmm. say that I am a really big movie person um, so I'm going to be coming at you with three movies that you likely have never heard of and could probably be classified as pretentious, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately. Well, we wouldn't think anything less of you, Ben. Thank so. you. Well, I am also the bread listener, so. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Ben. Yeah, you actually, over here, you, no one can, no one can see this because this is audio, but over <laughs> by our, our, our lamp over here in our, in our little studio, um, Ben has br- blessed us? I know, cursed us with... <laughs> 
a bit of decoration. Oh, he has a cassette of the best of bread, which is pretty ironic since there is no best of bread. All of bread is terrible. It's a blank tape. See, that is better than bread. <laughs> that is better than the band bread. bread so is... you know what? I'll take it. I'm going to play bread underneath this whole discussion, too. <laughs> great. Oh, this great. Well, all of our listeners, whatever listeners are left after that intro will be asleep now. I so. got to say, I loved how you put in uh, Land Down Under Flutes underneath oh, the King Giz great. discussion. Perfect. Yeah, last, Perfect. last last week, if no one has checked out Thank our King Giz episode last week, which you all definitely should. Yeah, um, that was a good one. It was a pretty fun episode, but I, I made a wisecrack about going to the land down under because we talked because King Giz was from Australia and he put a little flute line from that terrible Men at Work It song. <laughs> yeah, I found under, that under my voice. It was perfect. It was, it was just I, I I like when editors do that little artful edit. It's very fun. Thank you. I love it. Anyway, uh, yeah. All right. So I think without further ado, we're going to get into our movies now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to kick it off with a movie whose title original title I can't really pronounce. Um, originally called Lo Chiamavano Trinita, um, mm. also known as They Call Me Trinity here in the good old U.S. of A. <laughs> uh, stupid. Um, came out in 1970. It's a spaghetti western about a ne'er-do-well sheriff who, he's just really lazy and he sleeps all the time, but he has a good, really great gun skills. Uh, and the song I'm going to play you from this soundtrack is Trinity Tiddly, which you might recognized not from this movie, but from the end of Django Unchained. just a little bit of the soundtrack to Trinity is my name. Uh, they call me Trinity. It went by many titles here. Um, but this is kind of your traditional spaghetti western fare. Um, there are a lot more vocals in it as you heard in that track which is the main title theme and that whistling riff is reprised throughout most of it. Um, it's kind of standard spaghetti western which means you're going to get lots of really reverb drenched guitars um, lots of whistling, lots of smaller hand, per- hand percussion and single drums as opposed to full drum kits. Um, but Michael, we were talking about the soundtrack earlier and mm-hmm. you did, uh, kind of point out some more non-traditional elements. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm getting what I should be hearing from a spaghetti Western soundtrack. I'm getting the whistling. I'm getting a lot of Spanish guitar for sure. And I'm getting those kind of, um, you know, those really suspenseful buildups to a kind of a grandiose explosion of intensity, like a gun firing off. But I was listening to the track Un Cowboy y Due Regaze. <laughs> yep. And I heard some really interesting uh, kind of pinging synths and like this buildup to uh, it, it almost sounded like a uh, like if a Radiohead song went uh, Spanish. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I absolutely loved it. And, uh, you know, how does... A song like that represent the movie is is this a traditional spaghetti western movie per se? Um, not exactly. 
for the listener, spaghetti westerns came to the forefront uh, of cinema in like the 60s. The traditional western had all but died in America, but they were all really popular in Italy. Mm-hmm. And filmmakers there started trying to replicate that formula, um, but they didn't have the money for big orchestras. So this is the kind of soundtrack we started to get. Um, to answer your question, Trinity is on the surface, like if you looked at a poster or something like that, it's a traditional Western, but beyond that, um, it's more of a comedy Western, Yeah, which... Kind of self-aware, maybe? Yeah, and and not really self-aware of the fact that it's a spaghetti Western, but more self-aware of the fact that it's just a general Western. Okay. Uh, do you take a traditional liking to Western movies? And uh, what are some examples of Westerns you've watched besides this one? Right. Uh, I'm, I'm a far bigger fan of spaghetti Westerns than um, uh, American Westerns from earlier. The only American Western I'm really big into is Shane, which I think that's from 1949. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm a big fan of the basic stuff, uh, like for a few dollars more, the good, the bad, and the ugly that sort of thing. I also like El Topo, which is a kind of arty Western movie that came out in 1970, I think. Yeah. From the same area, but not really traditional. If you were to recommend one Western or spaghetti Western movie um, for the average movie viewer to start on, what would you recommend? It would definitely be The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I mean, it's a three-hour movie, so you have to be prepared and you have to start it early, but the cinematography is gorgeous. There's not a lot of dialogue, especially in the beginning of it. Clint Eastwood's performance is amazing. Um, every performance is really amazing, honestly. And the music is, that's what you think of when you think of Western music. That's that, like, the drum beating and that whistling line that yeah. is in every single Western pastiche since that movie came out. So Yeah. I remember, Andrew, when we had Elio on for our Guilty Pleasures episode, and he actually talked about how he listens to a lot of, like, spaghetti western soundtracks just in his free time. And uh, it made me curious as to how someone can get into such a niche type of music. Yeah, I mean, I'm not too—I'm probably the least familiar with western soundtracks and movies, for that matter, between the three of us. Um, But the clips I have seen of them, the clips of music I have heard, uh, there is definitely a feel that at least the older, um, older films try to capture. It's very grandiose, very epic, kind mm-hmm. of sweeping, you know, sound. It definitely tries to encapsulate, encapsulate some sort of journey, some sort of excitement. And um, I, I, I guess for me, again, I don't know Elio's the extent of Elio's enjoyment outside of the films right. of the music and how he consumes it, but I, I would assume it just comes up in certain scenarios, like if you're trying trying to pump yourself up for something, maybe if you're... Uh, I can see that working for, like, long car rides, very yeah. long car oh, rides. Yeah. That would certainly be a cool experience, so I don't know. Um, I, I, the thing is, for me, and I guess I'll talk about this now, when, when we're talking about soundtracks, movie soundtracks, they don't tend to work for me very often outside the films because... Right. Either A, like in scenarios like these, the music's really there just to kind of complement the movie. I mean, not to say the music's bad necessarily, but it's there to kind of like 
create a mood, right. create you know, some sort of excitement or feel for the movie. And it's not really meant yeah. to be listened to outside unless, the Unless film. you're feeling in, in that exact situation, yeah. how right. are you going to relate with music like that? That's why I feel like a lot of us chose music that could be listened to or, outside. Or more compilations. Yeah. That's yeah. Kinda, yeah. Like I kind of went – I have two – I guess more traditional movie soundtracks is in, in that they were recorded specifically for the movie. And then my third one, I guess technically is a traditional movie soundtrack, but it's more pop music. Yeah. Um, I, I did try to pick stuff that was at least mm-hmm. interesting enough that if you just went in and listened to it, or if you watched the movie, you could pick out maybe a song or two and yeah. say, I really want to listen to this. It's not like, like people aren't going around listening to this, the theme of Star Wars, not even the disco version. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, boy. So Jesus. It's, it's, not, it's not necessarily that bland, that. I, I don't think, but um, <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll play it with the disco version of Please Star don't. Wars. On this. Yeah. Don't. We are, dude, the listeners don't need it. But um, but uh, yeah, yeah. But as I was saying, the other the other flip side of the coin sometimes is you know kind of there like original, whether it be original score music, like what you hear, you know, stuff with like Star Wars, and we'll talk about that later. But um, some, some sometimes something that's made for the film, but like again, meant to be like orchestral or just kind of like just there to create a feel for it. Right. Or on the flip side of it, um, a lot of times film soundtracks tend to be compilation stuff that's. They're meant to sell records, meant to sell singles, and that kind of leads us into the next director that we have. Actually, um, I, I say director because that's one of my entries. It's one of my picks. I didn't pick like a specific film from this director, but whenever I think of like compiling movie soundtracks, this is the guy I think of: oh, yeah. Quentin Tarantino. Um, Michael, you've kind of known about Tarantino longer than I have. I've been recently starting to go through his films, and I generally sure. come to to a great appreciation of his soundtracks. Uh, what, what can you tell us about Tarantino soundtracks? Yeah, I mean, I got introduced to Tarantino probably when I was, like, 14. A good friend of mine just really are, is into his films, and there's been a lot of, like, resurgence of hate for Tarantino for some reason. I mean, yeah, he's a creepy old Hollywood executive. Of course, he's not the most approachable person, but it, you can't deny that his movies have purpose, and they serve. They present a great theme. I mean, just the examples with Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs and and uh, Inglorious Bastards, all of these mm-hmm. classic films. And, and speaking of soundtracks, this is a man who writes the movie to music, all right? He'll, he's like us. He has a giant record collection, and he'll pick out a record, uh, most of the time like an old blues, soul, or Motown sort of feel, and kind of write scenes to that music. And if yeah. those scenes fit with that music and he can kind of build something off of that that uh, record, that's usually how his movies are spawned. And, it, and it's, it's so interesting to me because um, I, I guess I'll say it like this. Um, when I was over winter break, I was watching a lot of Tarantino stuff with my dad. We were just kind of starting to go through his catalog. I think I watched like three Tarantino movies or something crazy like that yeah. over, over winter break. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was driving with my, I was driving with a friend around, like, around Dearborn somewhere and we were just kind of hanging out. And uh, I think a Rolling Stones song came on from Exile of Main Street. I can't remember which one. Um, but I came on. It's like, and we were kind of, it was kind of, it was like, you know, 35 mile an hour road somewhere in Dearborn. Now it's just kind of cruising, mm-hmm. cruising through. And I was like, mm-hmm. damn, I feel like I'm in a Tarantino film right now. Yeah. You know, he, it's almost so weird how he's created, like, even with super famous artists like Rolling Stones, it's not like, you can now kind of associate that kind of sound with Tarantino because he's kind of incorporated a lot of that kind of music, especially classic rock, older you know, pop stuff like mm-hmm. Motown or old like R&B to his films. And um, especially true with the two soundtracks I 
tend to think. I haven't seen every Tarantino film, but of the ones that I have seen, and these are not my favorite films of his, to be honest, um, but I really like the soundtracks as a made great feel for the movies, and I just really like the music for them as well. Yeah, um, Jackie Brown and his latest one, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I really like kind of the soul and R&B direction he kind of went with that one. Mm-hmm. Um, used a lot of stuff from the Dolphonics, which aren't my favorite. But... On Jackie Brown you're talking about? Yeah, Jackie yeah. Brown. Sorry. So, yeah, um, not really my cup of tea, but I still really liked how it made that movie, and I still liked a lot of the songs as well. And then, of course, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, again, not one of my favorite movies of his, but I loved it. Was just essentially that whole film was essentially just a love letter to like late '60s Hollywood and mm-hmm. you know music as well. There's a lot of great songs he used, and the one that kind of stood out to me from the film, I'm sure it was used in a driving scene, was a uh, Rambling Gambling Man by Bob Seger before he kind of went lame in '70s. So, Ben, if you'd like to play that for us. Um, I really like how, like Michael said, I love how Tarantino kind of puts together his soundtracks and writes scenes to the music. Like, there's like, I can't remember the name of the song. I feel really bad for it, but the the song used in that famous dancing scene with Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction, yeah, uh, it's just iconic. Like, you you can't separate that song from that scene now. So, yeah, definitely. for me, it, for me, it was his use of like Link Ray's Rumble and yeah. tons of other surf rock on on Pulp Fiction. That's so memorable. I remember I oh, one yeah. of my recommendations was actually the. Uh, the the surf rock album mm-hmm. that he kind of based that off of a, a few episodes back. And, so. I'll, and I know if, I'll let you speak in a second. Sorry, but it's I know okay. um, my one two of my favorite films I've definitely seen of his are the Kill Bills, and um, I think in the Kill Bill one um, he. Uh, brought in this, I don't know how known they were at the time. I I assume here in the States they weren't that well known. No. The uh, five, six, seven, eights. Yeah, that made them. Um, they're awesome, like Japanese, like garage surf, like pop rock band. And they just got like, they play really like nice, like sweet reverby music over top this crazy fucking chick that just like manically <laughs> screams over top of it. It's great. I definitely recommend anyone check out their stuff. They're great. But yeah, I love how he just, he can, A, make a band, make a song too. And it's just like, mm-hmm. yeah, Tarantino just has a way of, even though they are just compilations, he has a way of putting these things together. For sure. Yeah. Um, first of all, the song from Pulp Fiction uh, for the, the Jack Bunny's dance scene is You Never Can Tell by Chuck Berry. Mm. Ah. Um which I think it's okay if we forget him. He is kind of an American treasure, but yeah, there are some yeah. questionable things that oh, happened. Yeah. Um, but moving on from that, something <laughs> else interesting there. that Quentin Tarantino does is um, he will append things onto pre-existing songs. Like, for example, the Super Sounds of the 70s Weekend in uh, Reservoir Dogs, or for a more recent example, uh, the radio station interludes that are found in the soundtrack and movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The real Don Steele, 93 KHJ. 317KHJ, totally intense. That's me, the real Don Steele, Simon Garfunkeling, Mrs. Robinson.
So I want to kind of go on the complete opposite side of the coin in terms of movies we've talked about and soundtracks we've talked about and talk about a horror film with a synthesized soundtrack, uh, just completely diverging away. But um, so I, I wanted to bring I'm scared up, already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't do horror, Michael. Like I know. I know. It's it's so niche. But I, it's a good I, thing you don't have headphones on. I, I absolutely fell in love with horror movies like three years ago, and it kind of started with this movie. I'm talking about 2014's It Follows, uh, directed by David Robert Mitchell um, and featuring a soundtrack by Rich Vreeland, a.k.a. Uh, Disaster Piece, which is the name you want to look up on Spotify after I tell you how awesome this soundtrack is. Mm-hmm. But before I get into that, I want to explain the movie plot a little bit. <laughs> um, and before I start... You should know that David Mitchell himself said in an interview that when you say the plot out loud, it sounds like the worst thing ever. Here. While you read it, yeah. read it in a creepy voice and I'll play some of the music underneath. Oh, shoot. Here we okay. go. <laughs> so the movie opens up featuring Oakland University student Jay Height, played by Michael Monroe, who goes on a date with a mysterious boy named Hugh. The date goes very well, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Afterwards, Jay is kidnapped by Hugh and is taken to a broken-down parking lot. Hugh shows Jay that he's being followed by a supernatural being that can take the form of any living person, but for some reason it prefers to show up looking really fucking gross, like a rotting naked lady, or a woman in a hospital gown, or an eight-foot-tall man without eyes. (laughs) The being, which Hugh refers to as it, is a sort of curse that can be transmitted through intercourse. Nobody can see it, except for those who are infected or have been infected in the past. It haunts the <laughs> <laughs> Okay, oh, that's amazing. Right. So basically, it's about it's a movie about a ghost STD. Yes, <laughs> but listen to this, okay? Let me explain the rules of this horror film. Okay. Uh, so there's this entity called It, and it hunts the one who has been recently infected um, through having intercourse with the last person oh, yeah. who's been infected, okay? And it continues to um, hunt and kill and whoever is infected at the present time, the most recently affected, and it'll go down the line reaching some goal. We never find out what mm-hmm. that goal is, right? And kind of going down the line of killing these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody can see this entity except for those who are affected or have not or have been effect- infected in the past. And on top of that, it cannot be it can be incapacitated, but it cannot be killed. The only way to get rid of it temporarily is to pass it along to someone else. Okay. And the movie is essentially one big chase scene, if you think about it. I mean, you're constantly being followed by this entity, and Jay and her friends try to flee and discover ways of getting rid of it kind of forever. And um, every time it shows up, it plays the most haunting, dissonant theme. Um, and I want Ben to show it to our audience. Uh, uh-huh. Start Heels, which is the first track on the soundtrack uh, at about the one-minute mark. Yeah, 
why I can't do horror films. Sorry, the jump cuts. It's just really scary. I mean, the jump cuts. Jump scares. Jump scares, right. Um, Another interesting thing about this movie is that the whole thing shot in Detroit. So if you are a Michigan resident, you're probably going to understand and recognize a lot of the places featured in the film. Uh, The movie also has, like, undertones of being shot in, like, an alternate universe for some reason because, like, there's televisions that are black and white and cell phones don't exist, but, like, their clothing and costume designs all modern. It's weird. Um, Mm -hmm. But... It, it's cool because like any horror film, unless it's coming from Stephen King material, the movie had a really small budget, probably around like, I think it was $2 million, yeah. and ended up grossing $23.3 uh, uh, million worldwide. So, and it was also showcased at the 2014 uh, Cannes Film Festival. It's pretty good. Yeah. So, um, a little bit about the soundtrack, uh, Rich Vreeland's Disaster Piece is a synth musician that mainly utilizes something called chip tunes. Okay, and this is all out of our territory, so I had to do a lot of research on this. But essentially, what that is is video game music. It's all the kind of eight-bit, sixteen-bit stuff that you'll hear in arcades and computer games and and programs and stuff like that. And uh, he's just a Staten Island musician that started around uh, two thousand four, been kind of consistently releasing albums ever since. Um, and a lot of Reland's early work, um, especially on his album uh, Deorbit, it sounds like distinct video game music, like yeah. kind of like 1680s racing games is what I get from it, right? But um, after it follows, Reland designs soundtracks to more video games. Uh, you might recognize Hyper Light Dr- Drifter. It's a 2D platform from Ubisoft, whatever. It was pretty good. I played it. And... Um, it kind of features like a more mellow adventure style music, which is also featured in It Follows. And uh, there's this awesome scene where all the characters are kind of driving through near Eight Mile and trying to put some distance between themselves and It. Mm-hmm. And they pass by a lot of decrepit neighborhoods and businesses, all while playing this really eerie song. And I want Ben to play the theme. It's called Jay. like that a lot um it reminds me of the scene when they're they're driving past eight mile and that ghost std disguises itself as eminem <laughs> i was like he as soon as you said eight mile i'm like he's gonna make the joke he's gonna make the eminem joke uh, and that is the most terrifying thing of all <laughs> yeah that new album Trash. anyway uh i really think not enough horror movies use music and sound design to tell a truly like chilling story. Yeah, in modern times especially. Yeah, a lot of directors will rely on like gruesome imagery, the jump scares like you were talking about Andrew or they'll kind of like put too much emphasis on like character development. And mm-hmm. I think it follows soundtrack like perfectly complements the music or the sorry, the movie um, by creating like an uneasy tension and suspense no matter where the characters are at or what's happening on screen. 
Yeah, I mean, again, I've I've again, I've not seen the movie because and this this surprises a lot of people. I just don't like horror films. Just, I'm just a complete wuss. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> Although, I mean, cer- certain horror I can deal with. Like it's just yeah, it's just really the jump scares I don't like. It's just unnecessary stress that I just don't want. But um, I did try listening to the soundtrack, and it, this definitely is for me one of the instances where it's like okay. I mean, in the film, it's probably great. In yeah. the context of the film, it's probably great. But out, you can't really listen to it outside. Sure. Yeah. Sure. This uh, was my example of, like, a soundtrack that complements music. To, oh, yeah, the movie perfectly. perfectly. But I, I can see it. I know. I don't know. This is probably You probably said this when we first recorded this. But um, you mentioned how, like, sometimes you don't even know. Like, if you see someone walking through the streets, you don't even know if that's, you know, it. Yeah. It, I was just going to mention, like. This whole film is shot with, like, a wide-angle lens. I'm not a film guy, but this is just what I looked up. So, like, you see a lot of scenes where the characters are kind of at the forefront of the screen, but you see pedestrians in the Mm -hmm. background. And whenever there's someone walking towards, like, the camera, you have this thought in the back of your mind, like, fuck, that might be it. Yeah, and and I can easily see Mm -hmm. how a film can make that actually terrifying. Mm -hmm. Because, like, even even though in the context of the film kind of helps it, like, Someone just walking towards the camera. It's not going to be that scary. Yeah. But then added with the plot, plus really creepy ear music like this, it's mm-hmm. like it turns into like a oh shit kind of moment. Like is this is this thing going to kill me? Is this thing going to kill the character? It again. This is a great example. Like to me again, I can't say for certain, but I'm, I'm assuming based on what you've said, Michael, mm-hmm. that this is a great this is a great example on how to use music to effectively tell your story. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's the in in the way that classic horror soundtracks were, where yeah. the music is a character essentially. That's kind of how it is. Absolutely, and I and I know the elevator pitch of this movie is hard to digest, but uh, this kind of this is the horror movie that got me hooked on horror <laughs> movies. Uh, while the pick itself is like a little out there, yeah. um, try to listen to it. It's unconventional music um, for a movie that you probably wouldn't normally see. Speaking of elevator pitches that are hard to digest, my next movie is 2016 Swiss Army Man, (laughs) in which Paul Dano carries around a farting corpse played by Daniel Radcliffe (laughs) through the woods. If you don't know that that name name sounds familiar to you, it's because it's Harry Potter. It's Harry Harry Potter. Essentially a human corpse of a Swiss Army knife. Yeah, he, he, he provides him water. He's actually, I don't want to spoil too much of the movie, he is... In some way, he is the way that Paul Dano gets from a deserted island to the mainland. So it's it's a he he is a, a human Swiss Army knife for a while, and then the movie progresses beyond him being just a tool, and he becomes a character. And it is it becomes it it changes from something just bizarre and uncomfortable to something bizarre, uncomfortable, and really touching. Hmm. Um, and from the soundtrack, which I would also describe with all those adjectives, I have uh, River Rocket. So something really important to note about that mostly acapella kind of synthy driven song is that the voices you heard singing were our two lead actors. Almost all the music in this movie, similar to 
most of the movies we're talking about after this point mm-hmm. um, was done by the actors. Um, and that's it's actually really impressive. Like there are lots of voice cracks and stuff like that, but that really adds to the the music. And I agree. Yeah. I was actually I had a chance to actually really dive in and listen to the soundtrack. I had a spare hour or so today, and I I really did like enjoy it. And I you know just watching the trailer um, and pairing this music with it, it it sounds perfectly tailored to this movie. And and I love um, how there's this kind of like. Um, this this tension that builds up and and there's uh there's like a lot of like intense rhythmic patterns and yeah and like you said none of us at this table are very uh, approached to acapella in any sense of the word no. but um this this soundtrack was uh it was different for me it it, it would have it's a perfect introduction for me into that style of music and that style of vocalization mm-hmm. yeah again um i Say I tried listening to the soundcheck and I watched the trailer and um, again um, I, I will go off what Ben said. That watching the trailer did make me feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> just watching it, it just I, I don't even remember like doing very unnatural things to human body. That was just okay, but um, I'm, I'm not I'm not trying not trying to discredit your recommendation on the film necessarily. No. Again, I haven't seen it so. Can say that, but um, again, this to me, this is one of those soundtracks. It just kind of feels like, okay, I need this needs to be with the film for me to yeah. actually kind of appreciate it, because mm-hmm. outside of it, it's just, yeah, it's just some weird acapella stuff with um, references to Cotton Eye Joe every now and again. If you want to explain, yeah, that. yeah, I, I did want to talk about that. So, uh, our main character Paul Dano, he's stranded on an island, and one of the things that he brings up is that uh, the song that has been stuck in his head since he was stranded on this island is Cotton Eye Joe by Rednecks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that, that melodic motif of that song, lyrics from that song, uh, work their way into the soundtrack. And what I am going to play for you now is essentially an acapella version of Harry Potter, Daniel Radcliffe, singing <laughs> Cotton Eye Joe. <laughs> really emotionally. Really emotionally. And it kind of works if you forget it's Cotton Eye Joe. Yeah. And, uh, and Harry Potter. <laughs> From where did you go? Where did you come from? Cotton Joe. basically half the song it's like a minute long (laughs) it's so good i I actually i didn't bring this up the first time we recorded but i think a big part of my love for this soundtrack is uh from a recording standpoint and like being a musician is i really like the idea of one or two people layering their voices over and over again on a song uh in Mm multi-track and that happens on literally every song here um and i really like it it's kind of kind of like a a modernized version of a doo-wop group to that point in which there's lots of vocalization that isn't necessarily it's not just ooh but it's not yeah. lyrics yeah and the synth the synthesizers are ambient and they're just there and they fill the space perfectly yeah and it really does work as a great backdrop to the movie and a soundtrack that you can pull a few songs from that'll remind you of memorable scenes or that are just good music to listen to yeah 
I think feel like I can definitely get introduced to this more choral style of acapella rather than that doo-wop you're talking about. I hate doo-wop I, I, I can't, so much. I just, yeah. This is that late 50s, like mm-hmm. 60s kind. It's just so cheesy. Oh, we're going to talk about doo-wop. I will <laughs> talk to you about doo-wop Whenever someday. we hate someone, I have a we theory. have to do an episode I have it. a theory, and I'm not going to go into it right now, that doo-wop is the first punk rock. Holy shit. <laughs> I want you to say that again to my face Do-wop. and see if you still have an eye after that. <laughs> I'm pulling say my... that to my face again. I'm pulling okay. my pencil away. <laughs> before we before we start a fight, I think we should transition into Andrew's next Please. talk. And let's I don't, calm I don't need down. to get hot at 10.30 at night. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Anyways, <laughs> movie soundtracks. Okay, so... My next pick is probably the most basic one you could have when talking about any soundtracks whatsoever. Yeah, I gotta agree with you. But I don't care because you, you can't. If we're gonna talk about movie soundtracks, you can't talk about the very famous composer John Williams. You're right. And we don't talk about classical music at all on this show. No. So I'm not. I don't think any of us in here, unless Ben or Michael has anything else to say about it, I don't think any of us can really claim to be experts no, on it. No, no, not at all. But there is something about John Williams just makes a movie. Even if you are, even if you're like us, even less, even if you even know less about movies than than the three of us do, you, right. if you've watched any movie, if you've just watched a few movies in your life, there is a good chance you've heard a John Williams theme, mm-hmm. whether you knew it or not. And uh, yeah. how how come, Michael? Uh, well, I mean, this guy has soundtracks, Star Wars, Schindler's List, E.T., Indiana Jones, Home Alone, Jaws, Jurassic Park, which is going to be Andrew's main talking point, and, of course, the Harry Potter films, the first four, right? Yeah, the first four were yeah. him. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, pretty much, especially, I think a, 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 general, a good general rule is if Steven Spielberg or George Lucas touched it, it's a good chance that uh, John Williams uh, wrote the music to uh, to this to that film because mm-hmm. those he's worked with those two directors a, a ton of times throughout his career so um, they're almost like those like he's almost inseparable from those directors so mm-hmm. yeah uh, he also did uh, Jaws two oh great he did Star Wars The <laughs> okay. Empire Strikes okay. Back Jaws two was not that bad he did Star Wars Return II, of the Jedi he did Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom Temple, are you just listing, yeah, you're just listing all the sequels <laughs> okay well. Well, Temple, actually, I'm going to say Temple Doom wasn't that bad, even though there was kind of a racist character in there. But beyond <laughs> that, it, this is, it, it's, it's campy. You know, I'll say it's campy. But talk about John Williams and uh, specifically what theme really helped you appreciate his classical. Well, well, I mean, here's the thing. Again, like I said, he has just it, – it's so crazy to me how, how he's been able to – be so good at this for so long because he he can just watch a film hear hear someone talk about it and he just writes something that just fits so perfectly with it like when you when you, when you hear like the theme from ET and the, you know the the big swelling theme that you know right. them riding the bicycle across mm, the moon yeah. you couldn't think of anything else that goes with that Definitely. when you hear the da Dunna, oh, I'm not yeah. gonna do the whole thing, but when Ed, you, Ben can edit over it. <laughs> yeah, just, just yeah, yeah just edit the theme under my voice. But um, when you hear that, you can't think you can't think of anything else that could go better with a killer shark. It's yep. just how it is. He just he's just so good at matching the emotions, matching the the feeling of a scene. And um, certainly the one that always comes to my mind is from my favorite film of all time, Jurassic Park. Again, kind of a basic pick, but. 
I don't know, sue me. Do you um, care? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't care because Jurassic Park, I think, is an amazing film. It probably goes back to the fact that I loved dinosaurs as a kid. Mm-hmm. So it probably harkens back to that. And I just think it's a very well-told story, a very – actually a pretty, pretty a good adaptation of the book because you've ever read the book. It is – Michael Crichton who wrote – Originally wrote the Jurassic Park book. Um, just he loves putting all these crazy scientific wordings in his books. It's yeah. kind of hard to follow. Jurassic Park, I think, was a very accessible interpretation of that film. Awesome. But the music is re- really helps make it go over the top, especially when you think about the first scene. What, so the scene when they first reveal the dinosaurs. Uh, it's cause I think it's generally regarded as the main theme for uh, Jurassic Park. If you would like to play that for us, Ben. Yeah, um, I, if, if you've never seen Jurassic Park, first of all, what are you doing? Don't <laughs> watch Jurassic Park. Right. But uh, I have sinned, Andrew. I have never seen Jurassic Park all the way to, through. You need to, Michael. You, they, well, we watched a movie the other day together, and the other day for this for this episode, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll, we'll do that again with Jurassic Park. But, I had fun. I'd like to do that. But, um, but to, again, going back to that theme, though, that you just played. For, again, if for some reason you've never seen Jurassic Park, that's played again the first time they see the Brachiosaurus, the big dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you, it, it was also just shot directed perfectly because it literally pulls up and then like you, one of the characters looks over and they just they're gla- they start like trembling the glass they take off their glasses and they're all shaking yep. and they keep t- like pointing like and they went look over there mm-hmm. and it, the, the music sl- kind of slowly building up as like they're like they're starting to have like what looks like panic attacks yeah. and then as, when it finally starts to swell over you see just the giant Brachiosaurus coming in. And you, even though you know, it's computer. It's computer, like, animation. It's not real. You feel it's real, though, because just the sense of wonder that that theme portrays. And it's just like, you you know it's a big deal. It makes you feel, it makes you care. It makes it feel like a big deal, because it is a big deal in the movie. And um, that sense of wonder carries out in some of the moments of the film. Obviously, the tone switches around a bit, if you've ever seen Jurassic Park, because warning, they escape and start eating people. (laughs) And um, at times, it just becomes, the soundtrack becomes really terrifying, and it fits it perfectly. One of the tensest scenes I've ever seen in any movies is the... um, uh, scene where the like the two kids are trapped in like this kitchen with like mm-hmm. the Velociraptors and you know, the Velociraptors are really smart, so it's a really well laid, really well laid out scene, and the music just accompanies it perfectly. Yeah. Again, John Williams just knows how to make a movie. Like th- these films would be pretty good on their own if they got any other director to it, but I don't think they would be as well remembered if John Williams wasn't soundtracking them. I agree. I mean, if I got trapped in a kitchen, I'd gain 10 pounds. Um, <laughs> God, you're so cheesy. <laughs> What's with your jokes today, man? I don't know. It's 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 nearing 11. I'm, I'm just very... Anyway. Let's continue our flow with talking about movies from our childhood. But, oh, actually, I, I did want to bring up a serious oh, sure. point um, that got lost in my head under that joke. Um, 
Something that's very interesting about Jurassic Park is it's a kind of an effects-based movie or something that probably would be effects-based now, but it's held up really, really well. Yeah, well, it was one of the first movies that really tried to go, like, well, obviously there have been movies before, like Terminator. I know they had really gawed for all the CGI effects. But this was, like, I think Jurassic Park is generally regarded as the movie first movie that did it really well mm-hmm. and the first one you can look try to watch like the, the cgi of like the team 1000 from the terminator movies in the 80s mm-hmm. they don't hold up at all they look like shit but if you watch jurassic park the first jurassic park cgi wise still holds up surprisingly well and that was in like 93 when that came out it, it's yeah. so, so surprising and uh, one more i know we want to move on but just one more thing if i'd be i'd be it'd be a sin if i didn't mention it my favorite piece of film score of all time actually comes from one of the Star Wars prequels which even though the films are objectively bad, especially The Phantom Madness The Phantom Madness <laughs> is just a bad movie <laughs> The Duel of the Fates, which was the uh, piece of music that was that played over the the lightsaber duel between Darth Maul, Qui-Gon Jinn, and Obi-Wan Kenobi mm-hmm. it, it is one of the most epic most amazing pieces of music you'll ever hear in your entire life it brings me right back to playing star wars battlefront 2 and the playstation <laughs> the second playstation because that's i love that video game and that would constantly play throughout the menu so that's a special one the whole that's one that holds a special place in my heart so. agree with you on duel the fates don't agree with you on the prequels clone wars is ass or oh uh, attack the clones is We're ass. Not having this revenge of the sith and phantom menace are good no phantom menace and is bad the revenge of the sith is okay <laughs> They're all and that's bad. all I'm going to say about I'm not having this debate right okay. now. Yeah, I, I think our existences are at odds sometimes, Andrew. <laughs> what? <laughs> Just, I can't find anything redeemable there. But then you said something stupider. Go on, Michael. <laughs> okay. We got we to we talk about more movies from our childhood. And oh, I'm going no. really early in my childhood. Oh, I'm going no. back to 2006 when I was only six years old. And uh, we're talking about... A movie based on a book series that if you've never had read to you by a parent or a loved one, uh, you grew up wrong. Um, (laughs) We're talking about the Curious George film from 2006, directed by Matthew O'Callaghan and um, based on the children's series by H.A. Ray and his wife, uh, Margaret Ray, and soundtracked by Jack Johnson. Mm -hmm. Um, I have an uncle named Jack Johnson. Do you really? Yeah. It's a different guy. I just <laughs> wanted to add to the conversation. <laughs> Great. So, <laughs> Christ. Okay. So, it's this whole movie is featuring this easy breezy guitar playing style of Jack Johnson. Um, he's best known for his kind of memorable take on folk and soft rock in the early to mid two thousands. Um, he's pretty consistent at releasing happy-go-lucky acoustic music that I expect made Andrew cringe with disgust. We'll um, <laughs> occasionally, he'll introduce some white boy reggae and Hawaiian styles mm. throughout his music. Yeah. Um, not the best, but uh, I want to introduce the, uh, a song to you, just the main theme of Curious George, um, called Upside Down by Jack Johnson. Impossible, they forgot. 
So yeah, that lead single, Upside Down, is kind of what opens up the movie as George, the curious little monkey, plays around with the other animals in an African jungle. Um, the music on this soundtrack fits perfectly with the vibrant animation style um, and the carefree nature of the characters throughout the movie. It's really a nostalgia piece for me. And if you want some redeemable facts about this soundtrack, you should know that this is the first soundtrack to hit Billboard Top 200 since 2003's Bad Boys 2 soundtrack. So wow. three years yes, before. Yes, I remember Bad Boys 2. And, Do you? No. Yep. <laughs> and the first animated film soundtrack to chart since Pocahontas wow. in the 90s. Wow. Yeah. Well, hopefully less racist. Or- <laughs> So, Johnson, I think, is a pretty skillful guitarist. A lot of uh, colorful licks in his repertoire. His vocals are kind of trademarked with, like, this warm, soothing textures. Uh, Tracks like Broken, uh, Talk of the Town, and Jungle Gym, they kind of pump up the energy. You kind of described him to me as, like, a less ashholeist John Mayer. Yeah, yeah, that's how I would describe it, too. He's also a professional surfer, if you didn't know that. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's a renaissance man. He really is. But yeah, you have tracks like that um, to kind of pump up the energy, and then you have tracks like Lullaby, My Own Two Hands, and a pretty solid cover of the White Stripes, uh, We're Gonna Be Friends, yeah. to do like a somber low points in the film. Um, they also ha- There's also a few features on this album of artists that uh, you can check out on your own time. Ben um, Harper's on it, and I really, really like Ben Harper. Well, so. there you go. Something redeemable in the, uh, in the features. But... Um, this soundtrack really is my kind of go-to happy music. Uh, I don't view this album as children's music, despite it being in a children's movie. Um, a soft rock or folk fan would find merit in this without ever having seen the film. Yeah. I mean, okay, so when you first put the Curious George soundtrack in, uh, <laughs> in, the, in your playlist, I, I, it definitely raised an eyebrow on me because, I mean, I, I was cringing, prematurely cringing, because I was like, Oh, great. I'm going to have to listen to children's music because that's what went in my head. And as yeah. you're right, I mean, like, I have a black hole for a heart. And, <laughs> when I, and, and especially when I say that my go my go to have music is power metal. So that's really <laughs> definitely something. Yeah, big contrast. But, you know, um, but I will say I was, I guess, pleasantly surprised. I mean, I got, I, when I listened to it, because you're right, it, it doesn't sound like children's music. It sounds just like happy go lucky acoustic stuff and i mean it's 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 fine like it's not something i'd really listen to on my own time but mm-hmm. what, what i did like about this going through listening to it this is one of the rare exceptions where i can actually see a movie soundtrack working on its own it's just a regular album you can listen to for for enjoyment like it does, doesn't sound like a cheap compilation just to sell you stuff and mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like you know something that's just only meant to go with the film you know it actually sounds like this is music that can not only benefit a film, but also can just be a good album by itself. Yeah. Um, speaking of music that can be a good album by itself, our next movie, uh, True Stories from 1984, was directed by David Byrne of Talking Heads. Oh, yeah. And the music from it was Talking Heads' album, True Stories. Oh, yeah. um, but before it became that... It was the soundtrack for True Stories, and most of the songs were sung not by Byrne, but by actors from the film. Right now, I'm going to play you famous Hollywood film actor John Goodman singing a little song called People Like Us. There's something special about people like us. People like us. The telephone, people like us. 
that was just a little bit of People Like Us, which I kind of consider the closing theme to the movie. It plays at the the big talent show at the end. Uh, and I'm going to try to describe to you what True Stories is about. Before you do, though, this is kind of the section of the episode where we're talking. Our last three movies are all films that we've seen recently um, yeah. and we all have had exposure to. So we can have a more deeper discussion about plot, characters and uh, how the music kind of fits in that. Right. Um True Stories is a strange place to start, but it'd be strange wherever we put it. True. Um, on Wikipedia, it's described as a musical satirical comedy film, and I guess that's what I'd call it. Maybe a little less on the satire angle, but we'll talk about that. Um, essentially, what True Stories is, is uh, it's subtitled A Film About a Bunch of People in Virgil, Texas. And that's kind of how I like to describe it to people because I don't like to give too much away. Um, essentially, it's a time-driven movie, kind of like Napoleon Dynamite where there isn't really a main plot and there isn't really a main antagonist, although Napoleon Dynamite has kind of a main antagonist. It's more focused on following characters throughout their lives. It's a slice of life. Um, And David Byrne wrote this movie um, along with some Hollywood screenwriters uh, from just a bunch of ideas he had tacked up on index cards in his house. Um, And it's just kind of a series of vignettes of these people who live in this fictional Texas town. Uh, and they're all very eccentric. There's John Goodman who plays a man who really, really wants a wife. He has a a sign outside of his house that says wife wanted. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Not acceptable, but (laughs) Um, I don't really find it problematic within the context of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't want you putting a sign outside of your dorm that says wife wanted. No, I I don't want (laughs) that. Um, Uh, <laughs> there's a, a woman who is so rich that she just never gets out of bed. Yep. Uh, there's a woman who pathologically lies all the time. Um, and it kind of takes you through these characters' lives and interwoven within the story, kind of musically, although the songs don't really drive the plot, mm. uh, if there is much of one, are lots of Talking Heads songs, David Byrne penned songs that are sung by the actual actors in every instance. Yeah, um, we just watched of it recently. Talking head songs. Where yeah, there are a couple of David Burns vocals of Talking Head songs. There's literally a straight up music video in it at one point yeah. that's yeah. being talked over by uh, the woman who stays in bed. Yeah, and I, I I bet you already mentioned it, but in case you didn't, I mean David Byrne is a character in this film as an unnamed narrator and a kind of uh, he's the one who's kind of given the commentary um, over these characters' lives. And uh, I I my favorite scenes probably are is when. He turns to the camera and just gives a stonewalled, like, rhetorical yeah, yeah, question. He, he, <laughs> like, he does a lot of, like, awkward kind of deliveries of his lines. I, I mean, like it, I, though. I mean, I, I liked it, too. I'm not saying it was a bad thing. It was obviously done very purposeful on purpose for reason. I mean, it's just kind of – I mean, he always just kind of seemed like an awkward person to me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like, it just kind of – it just fits him. Because when you look at him, it's like, oh, that's David Byrne. Like, if he acted any differently, that'd be the weird thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually – so a lot of the the ex it's it's not really exposition it's just David Byrne talking that happens a lot when he's driving around a, a red convertible yeah. throughout the movie there are lots of shots of him driving process shots and it's in front of a uh, green screen or shot in real life um, when they had to uh, and he he will just deliver lines like at one point he talks about how he he made an observation about the difference between American and European cities but he doesn't remember what it was and he yeah. has it written down uh, at home somewhere sure. and then he just drives away and that's the end of the scene the the last lines of the movie uh, which kind of 
we'll show you what movie, what kind of movie it is. Uh, it's just David Byrne explaining that the car he's been driving the whole movie is a, uh, not a rental. It's privately owned. And he drives away. Yeah. And that's the end of the movie. <laughs> and I imagine you're going to touch on it, but uh, I want to talk about his kind of final monologue and, and kind of the main theme of the movie in, um, in forgetfulness. And I feel like you yeah. have better commentary um, on that. So his final monologue, I'm going to try to find it. But um, I, I think that the movie is kind of, it's, it's representative of the way he was looking at the world, at least at this time. There, there are lots of, I think you can kind of interpret it. There's not really a central message. Andrew and I talked about this. Um, you can interpret it how you want to, which sounds makes me sound like an asshole. But it, it really comes from David Byrne's view of the world at this point, which was kind of just to see the beauty in everything. Like there's a shot, it, they're driving through suburbia, and it's just panning over like identical-looking houses. And there's like newspapers blowing around and uh, four-car garages and stuff like that. And David Byrne's just like, look at this. Yeah. Uh, it's completely silent other than him talking like who can say this isn't beautiful bricks and sky and he starts talking about like hope and joy and love and all the things that are happening within these suburban houses that we usually think of as so ugly and identical um, and it, yeah his closing monologue is about how when you come to a place you'll notice everything about it you'll notice the doorknobs and how white white paper looks uh, and you forget all that as you get used to the place yeah. and how that's really significant, how he likes forgetting things because he gets to experience them all again. Yeah, uh, I, I really did like that final monologue. I, I do remember that. It is such, I think that is a very interesting point, you know, like, because sometimes when someone says something, it sounds pretentious and you realize, oh, wait, they're right. <laughs> like, you, you do, like, there's so many things you do, like, like I, that's an R.E.M. song. This actually has a similar kind of message to it, and I can't hmm. remember off the top of my head. It's off of green. Oh, it's bothering me now. But like, basically, like the whole idea of it is like you 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 walk past, you start walking past something every you know, every day, every day of the week, and sudden, and you just kind of forget things until suddenly you stop and realize, well, there's a parking lot here. I've you, you just it's just so blended into you. Don't re, you, you it, like it doesn't like come up in your head until you stop to realize that. I've had that moment mm-hmm. moment in my life plenty of times before, but. It, so it is a very that is a very interesting point, and but going when you said that people can interpret this differently, and you're right, we we did talk about this, like because you say because you kind of talked about like oh it's just more how David Byrne kind of viewed things. That's what it is to me. Like the the themes that I was getting, it was definitely a lot of talks of um, uh, kind of like mocking or critiquing almost like kind of suburban life and American politics and right. economics at the time. You know there was that this was the mall scene where like everyone's dressing up in these ridiculous kind of, you know, um, you know, outfits and, you know, it's kind of talk, poking fun of like the capitalist, you know, system, you know, with, with yeah. and everything and taking away from small towns. Um, I, I definitely did get a lot of that from the movie. And again, you're right. Sometimes it's just kind of a difference of opinions. You even said that we, you and I probably have kind of slightly different worldviews. Oh yeah. And so like, I guess your own personal experiences could, you could der- derive from this movie and which is, which I liked. I mean, you were, it was, it's it's funny when you two say when when both of you said that oh this is like a slice slice of life movie I didn't really get that from it like if to me this is a very exact if if I did it was a very exaggerated slice yeah of life. I definitely it's agree like with that kind of definitely like taking what we would take from you know small town America and like overblowing it to such ridiculous proportions sure. and uh, I, I don't know like the music definitely did kind of help with that at times mm-hmm. bringing it back to this episode yeah. um, but I don't know I I, I 
I wouldn't say that the soundtrack was certainly my favorite of what we were talking about today. Um, right. This is kind of a little, kind of a little odd, too oddball for me, but it it all definitely comes together in a really interesting package, and I did find myself quite enjoying the film. To jump off of that point, just to wrap up our final points on this film, uh, it, it, if we were to compare it to the Talking Heads discography as a whole, which we will definitely do a redo of our Lost Talking Heads episode uh, sometime in the future, because uh, Ben is uh, regarded as a Talking Heads expert as well. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not my favorite out of the Talking Heads discography as a whole. Um, I'm definitely going to go back and listen to something like Remain and Light before I go and listen to True Stories. But it has its tunes, and its right. tunes I'm definitely going to revisit after watching the movie and getting the full context. Yeah, and uh, I, so the the soundtrack that is everywhere right now is like the fully expanded, like it's literally every piece of music from the movie, and something that is really interesting that you don't really get from the true stories album is a lot of these songs were at least somewhat redone for the movie, if not just sung by a different person. Uh, what I want to play for you to kind of close us out of this discussion, because I could talk about this movie for the rest of my life, essentially, um, is this is <clears throat> a version of the song Radiohead from the album, true stories, the song that gave the band Radiohead its name. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's redone by Tito Lariva uh, Esteban, Steve, Jordan, and Los Vampiros um, in kind of a Tex-Mex style. You're going to hear lots of accordions, so it's a lucky day for you. We're still kind of kind of not quite as kind of bizarre and you know <laughs> interpretational, but still quite on the ridiculous scale with this and next the musical. Pick. It is a musical as well, which is surprising for, for you. me. And I was gonna get to that, Michael. Mm. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, shark. I'm, I'm ahead of the game, man. Yeah, well, we, we've already recorded this, so that's probably why. <laughs> that's true. But um, <laughs> no, this is another one of my favorite films ever. I love this movie, and this is kind of again another basic pick, but. Again, I don't care. Yeah, it, I, I'd say it, it's basic if it was like 20 years ago, but now this is pretty. Yeah, I, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I guess talking about it, I mean, maybe people don't talk about this much anymore. I don't know. It's an amazing film. And of course, I'm talking about the classic 1980s film, The Blues Brothers. And as Michael kind of alluded to, um, I should hate this movie by all regards. It is a musical, and I tend to just hate musicals because for think of something like Grease, for instance, you know, like, well, the reasons why I don't like musicals, if I don't you know, think of Grease, people, you know, like, you know, Summer Eleven, for instance, everyone's just like, oh, yeah, like, I, you, I met this boy over the summer and blah, 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 you know, mm-hmm. like, instead of just saying, yeah, I just met this cute boy, we dated for a while, probably banged a couple times, I don't know. Um, <laughs> like, instead of saying like that, well, obviously a little more drawn out, but saying that like a relatively normal person would, they said have to do this literal whole song and dance number explaining how, how great the summer was. It's like, just talk like a normal human being. Why are you all <laughs> dancing and singing? This doesn't make any sense. Oh like, God. I know films are supposed to have a suspension of disbelief. It, it, that, that, that's just too much. For, it's always been too much for me. But it's also a spawn from an SNL kind of skit, obviously, that Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, who are in the main stars of this film, if you don't know for some reason, um, 
yeah, I'm not a big SNL fan, so that's another reason why I wouldn't like it. Right. And as an atheist, this has some semi-religious kind of motivations and themes at times. And yeah, it's just something I should probably hate, but it's just the right amount of over the top for me where it just all works so well. <laughs> the um, right amount of over the top uh, when the final scene is like an army. Yes. <laughs> like, it's um, crazy. It is, it is a film that beautifully just constantly builds on oh, itself yeah. and just it's constantly gets crazier and crazier as it goes on. And it's just so wonderfully paced and built. It's just so great. Um, if you don't, again, if you've never seen this film, uh, like I said, it kind of spawned from an SNL skit that Dan Aykroyd and uh, John Belushi started doing. They kind of formed this band, the Blues Brothers. And uh, basically, the film starts off with John Belushi's character, uh, Jake Blues, getting out of prison. And uh, with his brother, Elwood Blues, played by Dan Aykroyd, picking him, picking him up. And um, they go back to their their orphanage where they grew up and they found out that the uh, they don't have enough money to pay for their taxes and they're going to start uh, and the orphanage is going to close down so now they got to figure out a way like on how to pay for that and um, they go to a there's a very famous scene later uh, where James Brown plays a minister because they go to church and James mm-hmm. Brown plays a minister and quite or pastor whatever and quite frankly I couldn't couldn't think of better casting in the entire world than to oh, put yeah. James Brown as a pastor. And, of course, he starts doing this great um, music number. And uh, Jake Blues famously goes, the band, after, like, literally, like, a fucking yeah, godlike yeah. comes down on him. He does these crazy Amazing cartwheels scene. done by an obvious stunt double because <laughs> yep. no way John Blues could have done that. And uh, then, like, the, the next third of the movie is probably it's about them trying to get their old band back together to raise enough money for the orf, uh, to pay off the orphanage debts. And um, again, insanity ensues while doing that. And then once the band does does get back together, they're doing a bunch of like music gigs, more insanity ensues mm-hmm. until, like Michael said, it's a final chase scene uh, g- going down like the Chicago highway, go, sorry, Illinois highway going to Chicago and they're in Chicago. It's just, you have to see the movie if you've never seen it before. It's great. Oh, yeah. They're constantly meeting uh, famous um, blues and soul singers along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, just great music in here. Great music numbers. I mean, if you love soul and blues music, if you already have even slight appreciation from it, you will love this soundtrack, especially in the context of the film. And I'd like to uh, Ben to play one of my favorites. No, my favorite song from this whole uh, movie. It's uh, Ruth of Franklin's version of Think on the soundtrack. I absolutely love it. So go ahead and play it, please. is absolutely killer it just fits the movie so well and aretha franklin is the goat that is official undisputed fact it, it is just she's amazing yeah. but and michael you hadn't seen this film before i was just gonna we started say, do, yep. doing this research so i want to know what did you think of not only the film but the the music the soundtrack as well well i've known that i was a sinner for not sinning seeing this movie uh for so many years and i thank you so much for showing it to me because i had fantastic time watching this movie just 
absolutely my idea of a perfect sleazy 80s movie. <laughs> and uh, and I love the characters. I love Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi's uh, kind of cooperation and chemistry throughout the entire movie. And, uh, of course, the soundtrack absolutely blew me away, bringing back blues songs that I haven't heard in years. And uh, it, it, it kind of did... S- Spin me on this wild chase of blues afterwards. I it's had a conversation. same for me as well when yeah, I first saw it. I, I started listening and going back and listening to some classic blues albums, and I had a conversation with a professor here in the journalism department who's also a big blues and soul fan, and it was it was fantastic. It's like everything lined up for me. Everything that should happen when you watch this movie lined up for me, and uh, I'm going to remember it for a very long time, and, and I absolutely loved it, and the soundtrack definitely does it justice. Um if Ben could, I want him to play a little bit of Sweet Home Chicago, the seven-minute jam session. Which they don't play the full in the movie. Yeah. So you get some, this is definitely a soundtrack. I think another soundtrack that you have that you can listen to, and it just works really well as an album. Uh, and Sweet yeah. Home Chicago is worth it. Yeah, um, do you have anything to say about this movie, man? Yeah, what I was going to say is uh, I really like how they took like some modern soul R&B artists. I mean, not really modern for that time, but like more modern. Uh, you got your James Brown, your Aretha Franklin, um, Ray Charles even. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they went like further back to get more of a classic blues guy like John Lee Hooker. And then even further back to Cab Calloway, who's like a... 20s blues shouter. Like, yeah, and he did many of the moocher on this. Right, his movie. most famous. It's a great scene. Um, I just really like that sort of encompassing of um, all that music. I did want to bring up something, and it's probably just invalid, um, but I'm sure. Do you guys think that anyone could be offended by the Blues Brothers? Like the fact that two white guys are going around and peddling. Oh, I, I'm sure even at the time there were talks of cultural appropriation and. I mean, we don't need to go into that discussion too much right that right here now. But, like, from, from, from my end, at least in my personal opinion, I could definitely see why some people would have issues with that. Right. Um, especially since, you know, they're kind of not really portrayed as heroes. They do do a lot of terrible things throughout yeah. throughout their journey. It's hard to just— They do fight the Nazis in the movie, They do, they do fight the Nazis <laughs> at one point, but they also unintentionally bomb a gas station, too, as well. So they definitely <laughs> right. kill people along in their journey. But um, I don't know. I guess, for, I guess from my point on cultural appropriation, I mean, it just—my uh, stance always, on that always has been be tasteful, but at the same time, right. I, would, I would love to incorporate, um, you know, different, you know, pers- you know not from different races and religions, you know, musical ideas or, or art, artistic ideas in general, yeah. to blend them together and create new forms of art. That's kind of. I don't think there's it. anything wrong with that. I, I th- it comes out of love for the music. Really. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it should also be said that this was this movie's main intent was kind of to spawn the careers of John Belushi and yeah. Dan Aykroyd as musicians. So 
and coming from that SNL skit, like you were talking about, mm-hmm. the characters were already set up before yeah. the production it, even started. Yeah, and also this film was kind of like, and one of the things they realized watching it for like the sixth, seventh time with you, Michael, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think this movie is kind of a parody of almost feels like a movie, like a parody, sorry, a parody of a musical. And I, I want to say comedy forgives all sins. Of course it doesn't. But I think, I mean, again, there's a lot that's supposed to be played up with that. And um, obviously right. they definitely do bring a lot of, you know, African-American soul and blues artists in here like John yeah. Lee Hooker and Aretha Franklin. And there's definitely a lot of love, like you said, for this yeah. music. I, I would also like to point out that our last three movies could all be technically classed as musicals. That's very true. Yeah. S- speaking of. Yes, oh, we're we're bringing it to the future, boys, and uh, I don't think we can have a music soundtrack conversation and kind of wrap this up ever than uh, kind of having the, the Scott Pilgrim talk, if you will. And uh, I mean, you've heard this this the title of this movie before, directed by uh, Edgar Wright, based on the graphic novel by uh, Brian Leo Malley, and. Before we even uh, play some music from the soundtrack, I gotta, I gotta just give a shout out to all the talent. I mean, we're talking original music written by Beck and performed by the actual actors of the fictional band Sex Babam, and uh, we're also talking some uh, music from Black Lips, T Rex, uh, Black Francis of the Pixies, Rolling Stones, and uh, Canadian band Metric. And uh, just a quick plot overview even though everyone who is in college probably has seen this movie or at Safe least heard of this assume. movie or what it's about if, if you are a scene kid in the late 2000s <laughs> you've definitely seen this movie <laughs> or just a, a, a person who's nostalgic for the 2000s right or the uh the late 90s or something like that but essentially michael Sarah plays michael Sarah. A.K.A. Scott Pilgrim. Yes, he does. Yep, a 22-year-old slacker from Toronto that's dating a Japanese Catholic high schooler. Um, Knives oh, my Chow. goodness. <laughs> yep, played by Ellen Wong. Yikes. Uh, Scott is also the bassist to a local fuzzy garage rock band called Sex Babam, which makes the movie really musically driven. Um, and to get a, a little taste of that, I want Ben to play. Where are Sex Babam? One, two, three, four. <laughs> When Scott meets the girl of his dreams, literally the new girl in town, Ramona Flowers. Oh, God. Scott kind of grapples. <laughs> yeah, he 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 grapples. He grapples with dumping his fake high school girlfriend in order to be with Ramona. Oh my uh, God! But don't think of this as your typical like teenage romance movie. Uh, Scott in... must fight all seven of her evil ex boyfriends. Not boyfriends, just exes. Uh, so a little bit about the soundtrack. The original garage music that you just heard that's featured throughout the film, like I said, is written by Beck and performed by the members of Sex Babam, the the actual actors, um, the cast members, all. Ha- uh, had to learn how to play their respective instruments, except for Michael Sarah, who actually learned or actually knew how to play bass and guitar uh, prior to filming. Um, and you can find some awesome behind the scenes uh, videos on YouTube about them trying to learn how to play their instruments. It's pretty funny. Um, 
it, this is also a pretty cool fact. You, you guys probably noticed there's also a lot of memorable sounds from like video games, such as like The Legend of Zelda um, throughout the film. And Edgar Wright apparently wrote t- Nintendo of America asking for the rights to the music and described those kind of sounds like the, you know, the chest opening and Legend of Zelda as the nursery rhymes of a generation. So it needed to be in that film. Um, right. And musically, uh, the movie moves kind of a mile a minute. Uh, with tons of creative transitions and storytelling techniques and violent fight scenes, which uh, we'll share our opinions on later. But to complement that, the soundtrack is loud, chaotic, high energy, features some talented artists that we've mentioned on the show before, and the original music is just absolutely catchy as hell. And um, the supporting music is a hand-picked curation of beautifully composed indie music. So um, what's some thoughts on the film, Andrew? Because you watched it for your first time the other night. Yeah, um, I had mixed feelings, so we'll, we'll, we'll say that. I don't mm-hmm. know. Like, it, again, this, I guess maybe like the Blues Brothers, I don't know. But like when I was watching this movie, the entire time I, I was thinking, I feel like I should really, really hate this movie. Like, I don't know. It just, just had everything about it. Just like, uh, it's really kind of off-putting to me in some way. But I, I, I thought it was fine. I thought the movie was okay. Um, it wasn't necessarily for me in a lot of ways. I will say this. I love the soundtrack. I think the both the original music um, is great, as well as the stuff they picked. I love Beck, so always good to see yeah. my boy in there. Um, the, the, the guitar... Blood Red Shoes is another great yep, band yep. Um, from the soundtrack as well. And um, the, the, the guitar tone for the original music was just awesome. It had this really thick, meaty feel to it. I really liked how it sounded. However, as far as the movie itself goes, I mean, it's kind of hit or miss. I mean, I, li- I like kind of, it was a, kind of an interesting twist on the you know, typical romance movie, which I liked. Um, however, um, the, the, the editing and the pacing was really kind of off-putting to me. It was just really fast, really a lot of quick cuts and edits with it, which really, I mean, was okay in certain areas. Yeah. But, like, for me, like, I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was younger. <laughs> Even I was going, okay, slow the hell down. Like, <laughs> wow. Okay. And also, like, all, like, the text pop-ups and, like, the video game effects. Right. Again, I know they're going for that. Well, it wasn't really for me necessarily, mm-hmm. um, but the, the main issue I with the film, everyone in this movie are total assholes. It's true. So it's like, wow, like Scott, especially, but mainly Scott Pilgrim. I think Scott Pilgrim is really hard to sympathize with this play because mm-hmm. he was cheating. He was, hey, first of all, dating a 17-year-old high school girl right. when he was 22. I mean, I got... No, that's no. bad. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that um, is bad, bad. regardless. Is, I mean, like, very bad. Very bad. It's not that is not aged well. And Ramona Flowers is not much better. No. Uh, she's kind of like manipulative and she heartless. And but then he all but then Scott also cheats on her with Ramona. It's it's all just really uh yeah. like I don't know. Like it was really hard to kind of sympathize with a lot of these characters. And Scott For never sure. really redeemed himself by the end of the movie, so I don't know. Like, there was stuff I liked about it. There's a lot of stuff I didn't, right. you know. Yeah. I think it's probably a good thing I didn't see this movie when I was younger. I, I only saw it after I started going to college. Um, actually, I avoided it up to then. I really, really liked the original music. But I have this weird uh, built-in affinity for, like, scene women 
scene girls and women that look like they were part of, of scene culture. Right. I don't know why it's there. like a secret here about that. Yeah, I don't know why it's there. It's just there. I, I'm not ashamed of it necessarily. Um, it's just a part of me that, that has always been there, even though I had like no contact with that subculture this, or knew anything. This is sound check after hours, everybody. About it. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Although I will have to say I kind of share some of that with Ben, like, you know, like a sort of, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a just fist punk pumped. guy. I'm <laughs> yeah, punk. I, Obviously, actual true punk rock girls. Definitely something I'd be into. I think we both come from that. Yeah, yeah. but you know, and scene is like okay. Scene is also acceptable. Like, I don't. What am I doing? Like, <laughs> this is sound check after hours. Yeah, God. It's so late. But I, I guess. Go, but going up. But it's, it's funny you say that because um, I was ta- when I was watching this movie with a friend, and she had kept telling me you need to watch Scott Pilgrim. You need to watch Scott Pilgrim. And I finally told her, Hey, I'm finally watching Scott Pilgrim for this episode. She's like, oh, Awesome. And I was watching. I was just like. We were talking. She's like, "Yeah, you had no idea how much I wanted to be Ramona Flowers or look like Ramona Flowers yeah. when I was when yep. I was younger." And she was like a total into the whole scene stuff when she was young, in her early to mid teens. So yep. it was definitely it, it, it definitely kind of set a precedent. It definitely matched a precedent that had been there at the time when it came out. So mm-hmm. I don't. I'm not going to say it's dated because that'd be totally hypocritical of me to say. Because I've said before, I don't like to use that as like a um. um as something, as, as something against the yeah, film. Yeah, a descriptor, yeah. But it, some lots again, for really icky reasons, like we had mentioned, but for a lot of like, other cringy reasons, too, it's just <laughs> like, it, it hasn't necessarily aged well to me, or it's just like, wow, this really reminds me of a time that I, because I was never, I was never really seen, you know, in air quotes, I was never really into that stuff, but even mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's like open a dirty secret that I, what I could have been, it's just, I don't <laughs> like thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. I talked about uh, the first time we recorded this, and I think it it still stands. I've thought about it since then. Mm -hmm. Um, Scott Pilgrim came out at a time in which we all would have been not in high school, but in middle school. Yeah. And I think that kind of, at least for me, it just, I look at it and I'm like, ugh, like, like this is what high schoolers look like when I was in middle school. And it just makes me indirectly think of being in middle school, which is something I don't (laughs) want to think about ever, ever. Who who wants to think about that? But the music is really great. Mm-hmm. I love Beck as well. And I, I think that like all the the original 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 songs, the Sex Bobum songs and the Crash and the Boys songs oh, yeah. actually are really 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 technically like good. They were rec- they were recorded poorly, I guess technically, but it it really is a feat the way in which they were made and Beck actually contributed some music for the movie like himself, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yep, he uh, actually finished the uh, unfinished song that Scott wrote for Ramona, which I think is a really cool detail. And uh, just a f- some final thoughts on the uh, on the soundtrack as a whole I th- and the movie as a whole. Um, I mean, when this movie came out, it it wasn't met with critical reception. It wasn't uh, there wasn't a lot of people that liked it or saw it in theaters. And then the hipsters found it and kind of made it their own. And now it made its way into the mainstream. And now people are starting to look at it as like, oh, this is <laughs> they're starting to think it's bad again. And I'm not one of those people. I, I still go back and watch this movie, and I I'm. I get a good sense of nostalgia for early 2000s. I am able to pick through the rubble of stuff that I want to forget and pick out the stuff that I want to remember. Yeah. And it, 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 for better or worse, it brings up all the good and all the bad from that yeah, time period. Yeah, it really yeah. does. And to close on that, let's... And on that bombshell, let's that play, sex bombshell. Let's play a little bit of Ramona by Beck, his finished version of Scott's song. I had such a great song. ending for that and you ruined it. <laughs> you ruined my segue into that second song.
so that was our movie discussion. We got through our big ones. Uh, I think now we're ready to move on to recommendations if yes, no one sir. else objects. And I was thinking that I could be the first to recommend, as I do have a band that contributed a song to this soundtrack. Um, I'm going to talk to you about the band Plum Tree, which I don't actually know that much about. They're recommended to me by a friend who I met at journalism camp long ago, <laughs> which is a very CM Life thing to say. Uh, they contributed a song called Scott Pilgrim to the soundtrack. And this song by them is from their uh, first album, Mass Teen Fainting from 1995. Uh, This is called In the Sink. It's kind of jangly, kind of retains some of that um, 80s influence into the 90s. I really like the singer. Honestly, like I'd tell you more about this band. Um, they're from Canada. I really don't know that much. I just know that In the Sink is a really good song. Uh, they have a, another song called Go that's pretty good too. I'd suggest you seek them out if you like that kind of sound. They kind of stick to that. Uh, the vocalist is really, really good. I like the guitar parts. It's just good music. I don't know that much about it. I usually do. Just not this time. <laughs> um, I'm with you in the same boat for my recommendation. I'll just go next. Um, I don't know much about this band, but they're really awesome, and I really like their music, so I'm going to talk about them. Uh, the band's called Mortillery. Um, basically, they're a they're unique because they're a female-fronted thrash group. Now, normally, I don't like to say something's like special or extra cool because something's female-fronted. I, I mean, man, woman, whatever. They do the same stuff. They can be equally good or equally bad at doing stuff in music. But the only reason I say that it's unique in this case because, I mean, there's, there are two female members here, including um, the, the singer, and tell me if I'm wrong, guys, but I don't think there's... I have yet to hear any other thrash metal bands fronted by a woman. Oh, let's be real. Thrash metal as a genre is, is a, a huge... sausage fest. It is. So, a... And new metal as well. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, there, there definitely are genres that women tend to be more represented in, like, like symphonic metal or I don't know what the kind of... I think that's technically what Nightwish is under. I don't know. But, yeah. you know, like, women are a power metal, too. I, I've seen a lot more yeah, women in that, more in those genre, mm-hmm. genres. But it kind of sucks. I wish there were more... was more women rep- representation in... Thrash metal. I haven't really heard it much except for this band, um, and this band is actually I think really good. Um, Mortillery's like first album or first material. They was like very sounded very much like a demo. It was very unpolished, very rough to to listen to. But even by the 2013 album Origin of Extinctions, they definitely did definitely build up a better production standard. And I don't know if they're still active. I hope they are, but because uh, they haven't released an album since 2016 uh, called Shapeshifter, which is my favorite of theirs. Um, really good. They really kind of built up their, uh, you know, instrument abilities and their production abilities and right. songwriting ability. Everything is just. They, this is a really great record. Um, the first single uh, off this album, Radiation Sickness, is my favorite song of theirs. It is phenomenal. I'd really like if Ben could start at about the. Uh, 30-second mark on this song and then play it until – for about a minute. And 
You'll hear one of the most badass screams you'll ever hear in all of metal. I'm not kidding. It's amazing. look saying that she was digging it so yeah i i am not a thrash metal guy like ever ever uh like i, I go like classic like new wave british heavy metal like that yeah. that kind of stuff's as far as i go generally but that i didn't really listen to it that closely our first recording that sounds really good and i was getting kind of like some bruce dickinson yeah i mean it, i mean it is interesting she definitely does bring like a more high-pitched kind of style to um to, I mean, it kind of reminds me of like Anthrax, because John Belladonna did the same stuff with it. It was very, he didn't really go for like, when he, he's the interesting one of the big four to me because he didn't really ever go like that gruff and that like right. gnarly to it. I, be, I did spot a difference though. The only difference between those two bands is that Anthrax is bad. But okay. well, that's for a discussion you, on a I later episode. <laughs> why, why do you not like Anthrax? I never understood that. Dude, it was a joke. Later I never episode, understood it out. Michael's been on my ass for like saying that Anthrax is bad. And you're the only person I've ever heard say that. I don't understand it. Oh, there's mm. plenty more. Okay, I'm, we're not, I'm not talking maturity. about this right now, but I, I think it's because you you want to listen to State of Euphoria. That's the only reason. And State of Euphoria is not a great record. That'd be the only reason. But that, besides the point. Um, but no, John Maldonado had a lot of those high pitched voices, vocal right. registries when he performed, and which is a very unique. Which is why I really like Anthrax. It brings a unique character characteristic to them. So there's definitely a lot of that going on with them. So I don't know. I don't even have much more to say. Definitely go check out their album Shape Shifter. They're a really cool band. I yeah. highly recommend. Solid recommendation. Cool. Michael? All right. Uh, I'm going to just recommend some more uh, lo-fi and depressed white boy music. Classic. But, yeah. It's classic Michael Hour. But I am, try- <laughs> I am trying to build an essential lo-fi playlist for this uh, for this podcast, and I want to engage that in some way in the future. And uh, you saw me recommend Sebado last week, which I think is a really important one. But a more recent one that came out in 2015 is called uh, Tomorrow is Nearly Yesterday and Everything is Stupid uh, by a band called Crywank. All right. What? Michael, please, please say that band name again for us. It's called Crywank. And it's I, a, ba- and it, want, and it's a better band it's name a, than Anthrax. It's a crywank no, thing. Okay. You wouldn't no, understand. It's a funnier band name. <laughs> you don't get to say better. It's funnier. <laughs> but uh, you're going to find some awesome uh, kind of one-man acoustic tracks um, with really bright production. And uh, really the feature point of this album, though, is the... Uh, the acoustic drumming behind it, and also the lyricism. It's so tongue-in-cheek, so self-aware of what it is. Um, There's a song on it called I'm a Cliche, which is literally him describing him being a cliche and like how it's like why am i writing this song it's so fucking stupid like i'm just like complaining about my life and this nobody wants to listen to this although like, self-deprecation especially in this genre is becoming a cliche in itself so there it's you like go. Cliche it's so meta right it's there. so meta yeah um but i actually want to play a different song on it that kind of 
showcases this really bright production on the acoustic guitars called Notches, and Ben can play that right now. To wonder when I'll be home One more night Stoned alone Ever increasing Notches on my belt I want to feel more Than just sorry for myself So yeah there you go. Just a little bit of some more uh, lo-fi to get your taste buds ready for some, uh, uh, hopefully, a lo-fi episode in the future. But uh, speaking of episodes. There's transition. Yeah, so um, <laughs> I think that was today's episode. I had a lot of fun with this one. Um, more fun than I thought I would, talking about a topic I don't really consider very exciting. But yeah. I think this was really fun, like I said. Now, next week's episode, we have another topical episode coming for all of you because this episode will be dropping at least, the, I think, the day, the day before day Valentine's, before Valentine's day. day. It's going to be an irregular upload. Yeah, uh, it's going to come out on a Thursday. Well, make sure you all have the opportunity to feel the power of love coming from all of us here. So, <laughs> yep. so yeah, um, defi- that'll be definitely an interesting one, especially coming from me, the black hole, heartless prick that I am uh, talking about. Love songs that mean a lot to us, or what? Is, what are songs define love to us? The three of us will yeah. each pick yeah. three songs, talking about how this creates a definition of love. And yeah, it's not it's not your stereotypical top ten love songs or top ten breakup songs. We really wanted to really personalize it and define it as yeah. uh, love, not in a relationship sense. It could be familial or friendship or anything like that. It's yeah. going to be a really interesting episode. If it's like me, love is very cynical. Well, there and you if go. it's like me, a lot of it is really optimistic. So <laughs> there you go, it's going to be a good episode, I think, to kind of really nail down all of our personalities. <laughs> I, I think so too. We're you know, what? actually, I, I've, I think I've already picked out my three, which I did in like ten minutes. I didn't really put too much thought in them. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should go back and rethink. But I think I picked out three really good ones. Only one of them is really cynical. So you know what? Shut up. (laughs) And hey, one more thing before we close the episode. The 17th Annual Central Michigan International Film Festival is this week, February 5th through Sunday, February 9th. Tickets are on sale now, just $5 per film, or you can get the festival pass for $30. Um, And go check it out and support some awesome filmmakers from the area. And uh, My movie's in it. (laughs) There you go. Great. (laughs) What's your movie about? Uh, My movie is called Secretary of the Skis, and it's about uh, water skiing. Great. Fantastic. (laughs) I couldn't think of a better way to end this episode. And And with that, as always, good good night, night, Detroit. Detroit.